Hello and welcome to the monthly podcast of Reading's Aldworth Philharmonic Orchestra. I'm Andrew Taylor, APO's Music Director, and I'm joined again by APO members and guests to talk about our musical lives. I'll introduce them in a moment, but to give some context, it's March 2021, and we're all patiently waiting and hoping that the government's roadmap out of COVID restrictions can unfold in the shortest possible time without compromising unduly on the health and happiness of the nation. For us musicians, that inevitably means a little more waiting for the in-person music making we all crave. However, with schools returning earlier in the month, it seems like a good time to put the focus of this month's podcast on music education. To that end, I'm delighted to be joined by not one, not two, not three, but four guests who each have more than a passing interest in music education. Mel Labrie has been a violinist in APO since 2004 became leader in 2018 and assistant music director in 2019. She's a violin and piano teacher, runs Reading Youth Orchestra and prior to COVID was involved in running the Henley Music Centre. Mel, Reading Youth Orchestra is one of the oldest youth orchestras in the country, having been founded in 1944. I know that many members have gone on to have illustrious professional careers in music, whereas other alumni, such as myself, have been able to carry on playing purely for pleasure. Give us a flavour of what the orchestra is currently up to, given the COVID situation. Sure. So um, I'm really excited that they've actually carried on this whole time online. Um, and I think quite a few groups have been trying this, um, the online rehearsal model. And it's, it's a great time for creativity. And I'm loving seeing all the different things that are coming from the students that we've got this year. So we've created four videos, the remote recording videos that everyone knows and loves by now. Um, we've also had students doing arrangements and compositions for us, because why not? This is a great time to test things out. And we've been having regular socials that um, have been, I think, I think I can safely say so much enjoyed by the students that we've continued having a Friday night session throughout nearly all of the school holidays, all last summer um, and all the half terms. So. I'm pretty pleased with how well they've adapted, to be honest. That sounds excellent. And I think I remember you telling me that they actually are more gregarious and, and sort of uh, lively during the social elements than they are in, in the music making elements. I don't know whether that's just because they're just concentrating hard on the music or, or whether they're just learning to relax. Yes, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they're concentrating really hard. <laughs> excellent. They are getting to know each other more as the year goes by as well, which is lovely to see. Jonathan Burnett is head of strings at Berkshire Maestros, which to those of us of a certain age used to be known as the Berkshire Young Musicians Trust and is now the lead organisation of the Berkshire Music Education Hub. He's also conductor of Berkshire Youth Symphony Orchestra, having started his teaching career in Wales after studying in Cardiff, which makes at least three of us on this podcast who enjoyed time studying in that wonderful city and taking his teaching and performing expertise to roles around the world. Jonathan, I guess my opening question to you is similar to the one I asked Mel. How has Berkshire Maestros been able to navigate the challenges of the pandemic? And I see in particular that you had rehearsals for Berkshire Youth Symphony Orchestra outside in a car park last year, as well as in the hexagon. We, we did indeed, yes. I mean, a very similar experience to Mel's actually at the, um, at the local level, our local music centres, they've carried on. Um, mainly online throughout this pandemic. Um, the pandemic to myself personally will, will never leave me as it started uh, the lockdown on my birthday. 
and it was ah. a, a year to the day uh, only a couple of days ago so yes um, but for Berkshire Maestros, yes, locally it's carried on online. Um, our county groups, so BISO, as we've already mentioned, are a session-based ensemble anyway, so they only meet three times a year. So that, that creates different challenges. We have been able to uh, find some creative ways, a word which will come up a lot today, I think, creative ways of finding um, opportunities to get the children together to perform and obviously post the first lockdown we did the, the famous rehearsal in the car park in the middle of the summer and um, we're just about to take on board a, a concert in June at the Hexagon um, hopefully a live stream concert we're still working on whether we can have any audience at all um, and previous to that we had um, a rehearsal in the Hexagon which was really very interesting uh, we took over the whole auditorium um, from the gods to uh, me up down at the bottom conducting um, really interesting but the key was to get get students working together um, in a covid safe environment which is uh, thankfully what we managed to do one of the interesting things about the reading jail campaign at the moment is that i am a bit like a broken record on the need for what i would call a configurable venue that can accommodate large-scale unamplified music and uh, acoustically the hexagon well I, I if i'm being unkind i'll refer to it in the way i always do which is it's the place where sound goes to die um but it it, it is actually very configurable with the various stage and auditorium lifts uh, that can be used and I, they made good use of that i think they put them in in the original design for the snooker uh, back in the day, because it enabled them to have a nice flat auditorium for the snooker with the rate seating all around it. Anyway, I digress. Anita Dutta is a freelance conductor, organist and soprano currently based in County Durham, where she's working, amongst other things, on her PhD in social anthropology. In addition to her work as a freelance performer, she's also composed several works, many of which draw on her rich dual heritage as a British-born South Asian. Anita, you and I have never met indeed never even spoken to each other before last week when a thread of yours popped up on my twitter timeline and we'll talk about that in more detail shortly but first of all can you just give us a flavor of what you're currently up to and your experiences of music education yeah sure so um i'm a phd student conductor um uh, if it's not too pretentious a bit of a polymath that's a way of saying that i'm very disorganized and do lots of <laughs> things at the same time um I, um, I came to this debate about music education because I am a fully qualified teacher for teaching in schools and I worked for over a year in the London borough of Newham, which is essentially one of the poorest boroughs in London, if not the whole country. Um, I'm originally from Hull uh, in East Yorkshire, so I, I have a lot of interest in the different kinds of um, experiences that people have when they're from different backgrounds, regions, and so on and so forth. Our final guest is Ashley Roy of music education charity Music Masters. Having studied performing arts music at the Brit School before completing a degree in commercial music at Westminster University, He's subsequently accumulated a range of skills and experience working in events, fundraising, live music, and developing emerging musicians. He spent three years as music and communications lead at Galleons Primary School, where all children from year two to year six learn a string instrument before joining the Music Masters team. 
Actually, until I was introduced to it recently by APA violinist Chico, who featured on our first monthly podcast back in January for all our regular subscribers, I hadn't heard of Music Masters. Can you get us started with a brief overview of its work and how you've been able to cope with the pandemic as well? Yeah, so basically Music Masters runs music programmes in different primary schools around London. So we are in five schools. And basically what we do is from their early years, we give them musicianship lessons and then we get them started on instruments. So violins and cellos are our main instruments that we use. And we run a programme that runs up right through up to year six, where children get two to three lessons a week um, on their instruments, learning at a, at a price, well, that is affordable, that, that most families in those areas probably would be priced out of if they were paying for it privately. Um, and we build in to the school environment. So essentially we provide, we make up the music curriculum for those schools, but it is a music curriculum that is on another level. And I became acquainted with Music Masters through hearing uh, an online ambassadors concert. Tell us about your ambassadors because there's some serious names in there, aren't there? It's incredible the amount of supporters that that we have that believe in what we do and come and support what we do. So we had our Ambassadors for Change concert a couple of weeks ago, which was part of a big give campaign to again, raise money to, to be able to provide these opportunities for young people, because again, it, it, it doesn't cost nothing and we can't put that cost on the schools or on the parents. It has to, we have to find a way to make it affordable for them. Um, and the work of our Ambassadors, when you can, pull off a concert with someone like Nicola Benedetti and Sheku Kana Mason and the Harlem Quartet, who, you know, in a normal world would never be able to get together and get them on one bill. But in this new COVID world, we're able to say, look, can you record a performance for us and let's put this concert together and get you all together and make this massive moment that you guys are going to be our ambassadors for change and change the way that we look at music education and really push forward opportunities for young people to get a chance on these instruments and get a chance to see what it could be like um, studying at the Royal College of Music or, or join a, a conservatoire and have those dreams and have those ambitions to really make a change in the industry rather than, you know, maybe I've got a violin lesson because my mum can afford it and they believe in it and they want me to do it. Or, you know, like it's, it's really inspiring. And like I said, our ambassadors believe in the work that we do and we're fortunate enough to be able to put on workshops and bring them into our schools to actually work with those kids and inspire them. If you have that person in front of you and you see them and you can touch them and you can feel it rather than just seeing them on a the TV, it can be very inspiring for a young person to, to feel like they can achieve that and they can go on to, to be something that great if they choose to and if they don't and if they just enjoy the wonders of music and get to have those experiences then that's just as important as well. Anita as I mentioned earlier I invited you to take part today based on what I found to be a very thought-provoking thread on Twitter certainly made me think would you I mean it's you can either read out the thread or you can just try and summarize it for us in kind of non-Twitter prose if you like but just give us a flavor of, of, of what got me thinking. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually initially hesitated to write this tweet because I wasn't sure really if the classical music world would take it. Um, but for context, over uh, over recent weeks, 
um, there's been a lot of attention to the idea that all children should be given an instrument and instrumental lessons, with which I fundamentally agree. Um, but I wrote a tweet in which I detailed some of my experience working with children who live in poverty or children who are from very working class backgrounds to sort of say that it's not as simple as throwing an instrument at all children, because actually a lot of children, even given an instrument and lessons, regardless of, you know, all that might not actually be able to engage with it. So in the tweet, I explained how um, I had a rude awakening one day in a classroom in Newham when one of my brightest year sevens came in to deposit her violin over the weekend. And I sort of said, oh, are you, are you not gonna practice over the weekend? And she went, oh no, I don't want that noisy thing in my house. <laughs> and I sort of didn't know how to respond. Um, but speaking to some colleagues who are absolute superheroes and have been working in Newham for a lot longer than I had at that point, they sort of said to me, well, look, you know, maybe um, her parents work night shifts and therefore practicing in the afternoon or in the evening is not really possible. Or a lot of the children, for example, I mentioned how a lot of children might be sharing bedrooms with other siblings or there might not be a living space in which they can actually practice. There's loads and loads of factors that mean that even if you give a child an instrument, they can't necessarily engage with it in the way that we assume middle-class children can. Okay, so I'm wondering if any of our other guests have similar experiences with some of their pupils, um, some of their students, in terms of not just the ability to get hold of an instrument, but also the kind of social structures that sit behind their lives that might prevent them from engaging with playing an instrument or learning an instrument yeah absolutely um i started my teaching career career in the valleys of south wales um having been at uh, university in cardiff and um the first thing that struck me about the students that were there was that they were truly musical and um, really wanted to engage in in music making and from my point of view string playing the challenge came when they left the school and had uh, a house where they could share a bedroom with two other children. Um, and it was very difficult for them to practice at home. Um, so we, we toyed with the ideas of how, how this could work. If you go back a number of years to, um, to Suzuki, who the great, great violin school, which has taken over the world, the triangulation of uh, teaching approaches, which in his world was a parent, a teacher, and a student having equal responsibilities in that three-way process. Somehow we needed to find a way to create that triangle, but within the school environment. And so lots of, lots of thought, lots of concentration, lots of conversations went on about how that could be possible to do that. And we did come up with some great successes of en uh, enabling children to come in before school, to stay after school, to practice in varying parts of the school. Obviously in today's world, in COVID world, when schools have been closed, that has become absolutely impossible to facilitate that. Um, but hopefully we can continue with that work um, when we go back and when the children go back face-to-face -face having lessons. Mel, in terms of Reading Youth Orchestra, I, I've noticed when I've come along to work that there is an incredibly wide range of 
abilities and levels of of proficiency on instruments how do you manage to take into account the different circumstances uh affecting your players and making sure that they get the best out of the ensemble experience even despite those challenges it's an excellent question um we're quite fortunate in being reasonably small compared to um you know a standard size symphony orchestra um, and having a quite informal relaxed atmosphere in the rehearsals and to the audition process that we actually just get to know the student and the parent as they arrive and as they enroll um, so our audition process is basically sit in and see what you think and we chat to you before and after um, and it's it's very personable so we have older members of the orchestra that look after the newer ones and um, we have the dialogue with the parent as they are showing interest and after their first rehearsal and then as they go through to find out what works for them and what doesn't and being able to sit them with someone who can help or we have um, volunteer adult volunteers that come and help as well um, online is a little bit more tricky because we're not physically in the same space i don't speak to the parents as much um, but i think they they know where to go when they have questions and um, we still have an adult volunteer or two on our calls just keeping an eye out that everyone's doing okay and that they're coping all right so between us we try and you know between the older students and the adults try and keep an eye on how everyone's getting on. Ashley how do the issues that Anita has uh, outlined affect the work of Music Masters and how do you overcome those challenges? I mean in the time that we're in now, it's extremely difficult. Um, when you, when we're in school and we're teaching in the schools, we have access to those children and they're having their lessons during the school day and some have some during after school or before school, but we've got access to them and they can come in and it's a safe space for them to be able to pick up their instruments, play and learn. Um, when they're at home, as much as we can create timetables and set up all their zoom and tell them how to do it and make sure they've got their instruments and give them rosin and you know work out solutions to fix stuff if if they physically don't have either the tech or the living situation to be able to go to one side and have a lesson with us even if they wanted to because their older brother is doing his english lesson and he needs the computer or they've got a younger sister running around who would be in nursery but instead wants to play and wants their big brother to play with them you know it, it, there's so many different situations in the work situation as well mum and dad might be at work so you might be at your grandparents house instead and not have your instruments or not have the facilities to to perform or or go to those lessons at that time and it's really difficult we've spent a lot of the last term since going back into lockdown on the phones to parents and families and trying to see how we can support and how we can make the lessons happen without trying to put too much pressure on them because again you know a lot's changed schools are doing a lot more online content and lessons for for children to engage in which is great but at the same time if your child has been on an english lesson at nine a maths lesson at 11 and a science lesson at two do i really want to log on again and get my child back on for a music lesson which is nice but is my child really going to play in an orchestra are they are they is this actually going to take them anywhere and then you know that's a, a fair conversation on what we have to do at music masters is show them the bigger picture and show them everything that by playing this instrument is available to their child which isn't just about 
going into an orchestra. It's about being able to get up in a boardroom and have that confidence to give a presentation because you're used to standing up and playing and performing or you're used to multitasking when you're thinking about what you're doing with your left hand and how your right hand is bowing and all of these different things and trying to make sure those messages get across to the parents so they see the bigger benefits um, and can help support their child to do it. And it's not easy in any way, shape or form. And all you can do is try and, and talk and have that dialogue and have that communication. I mean, I, I was working in Noom for three years before um, coming to Music Masters. And when COVID first hit, which is while I was still there, we we had a child who was having cello lessons and, you know, he's good, in, enthusiastic year five kids, really enjoys music, likes likes playing on the playground as well, but he was he was really on it. And his his attendance at his lesson was going up and down. So I ended up calling up and just saying, you know, look what's going on, what's happening? Like you really enjoy playing, um, what can we do? Um, and he didn't want to say anything. Um, and what we what we discovered was that because of his home environment, he didn't like playing with the family around him. He didn't feel comfortable. Um, and so he just wasn't coming to lessons. And what I ended up having to do was having to leave the school and go because he lived two minutes away and literally knock on his door, bring him round, bring him into the music block and let him have his lesson that way and then send him back home. And it's about being able to being able to make that extra effort, which sometimes you can't always do. Um, and it's sad, but some for some people, that's what it needs. It needs educators and leaders to be able to go that extra mile to make these opportunities happen for the children. Um, and sometimes it's achievable and other times, yeah, it, it's, it's tough. It just isn't, unfortunately, but you can only try and do your best. Anita, um... The issue here seems to be uh, as much about venues and spaces. You know, one might even say safe spaces for children to engage with learning a musical instrument. What, if any, provision is there for such spaces from local councils or authorities? Is there anything out there at all? This is kind of what the tweet was getting to the heart of. Quite a few people misunderstood me and thought I was saying, well, don't bother giving them instruments. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying actually is that all the other things that need to come with that also require resourcing. You know, Ashley's there saying that like going the extra mile, going around, um, picking this kid up. But after a point, like, are you being paid for that? Are you being supported for that? Is that being recognized as work? My little brother, who is a fantastic tenor um, and just, I had the pleasure of watching him teach theory classes um, during the lockdown. And you know how some people are like, oh, I didn't realize my partner was that guy. I didn't realize my brother was that teacher. I was so proud of how he was engaging with the kids. Um, he started working at a school in St. Helens. And in the last four years, they've had three different music teachers. And the first term and a half, was basically him trying to convince the kids that he wasn't going to leave, that he wasn't going to abandon them. Um, and this is absolutely no judgment on those colleagues that did leave that job. I'm not working in schools at the moment. The amount that you're required to do, the fact that every single lunchtime, you will probably be doing a different extracurricular activity, whereas your other colleagues might do one or two clubs a week and that that is not reflected in how much you're paid or how much you're supported 
um, in general. My, my message really with this tweet was that actually, if you really care about getting kids engaging with instruments, engaging with music, you need to be just as passionate when there's a petition about housing reform, when there's a petition about education reform, when we're talking about like pay rises for teachers or teachers just being paid fairly. I think this was also inspired, it's worth saying, because a footballer made a comment about children having access to music education. And, you know, on the back of the Marcus Rashford thing, I think footballers are seen as the new social social justice warriors, saviors of, of the country. But the thing is, like, if you've got a hungry child and you give them food, that more or less solves the problem for that moment, you know, before we get into talking about systemic poverty. But what I wanted to say really is it's not, the same problem when you come to music because there's these intersections of spatial, cultural, temporal privilege um, without making it too jargony. And in terms of provision, the only provision that I see is that which music teachers who through whatever kind of uh, spirit or support in their own lives have the energy to go the extra mile to make it happen. In my own hometown of Hull, um, to a couple of years after I graduated from school, the local music service was disbanded and that music service provided music education to so many young people, regardless of their background. So I don't want to be a pessimist, but I'm definitely a cynic, if we're going to put it in those terms, based on what I've seen um, beyond the goodwill and the dedication of colleagues. I think it was Benjamin Zander who said it. A cynic is just a passionate person who's fed up with being disappointed. So I think that's a fair description. It strikes me that actually we've got representatives from two organisations here um, with M words, maestros and masters. But actually, one of the problems we have is, it seems to me, is helping society as a whole recognise the value in investing in music education and the structures that support it and that actually for a large part means people because as Anissa said their teachers are superheroes and you're all superheroes to me <laughs> I have chosen a career path that's away from music and one of the things we'll discuss later is ways in which organizations like APO because this is an APO podcast so I guess we should involve us at some point um, can support music education in a way that's not just uh, a kind of trivial token gesture but we'll come back to that in a bit what i'm interested in talking about with with everybody is funding models how do you go about fundraising to make sure that the reach of your services your offer is felt as widely as possible fundraising is our age-old um age-old topic in probably most meetings that, that we go to as an organisation like Barksham Maestros that covers the whole of the county, the whole demographic from um, children in, in private schools to children in very challenging circumstances. And we as the education hub must provide opportunities for all of our children. And that's what we try and do. We've actually just finished a, a, a 72 page inclusion document, which is hot off the press and, and been taken out now and hopefully been delivered around the county with the help of lots of experts from around the country. In terms of the, in terms of the funding models, of course, it's changed hugely over the years. 
when I was a child in the 80s, music education was free at source. There was no cost to play the violin. In a school, you went into a school, you picked up an instrument, and you were able to take on those and those lessons. Today, it is somewhat different. But I would say that through Maestros, there are a number of uh, routes for children who cannot afford to pay the fees of a normal lesson, a group lesson, of which they are assisted to either through school funding, through PP funding, or through our organisation in Sponsor a Child. Obviously, there is nowhere near enough funding to, um, to do as much as we would want to do. And we are always looking for new ways to make that happen. Um, we've found a number of organisations recently to help us through the pandemic with buying IT equipment. Obviously, we're a music service and we have some office equipment, but recording equipment, equipment to make sure everybody is able to access, everybody is able to record. We didn't, we just simply didn't have the facilities. So we went out to fundraise and access lots of grants from around the country. Um, things, things are challenging. There is no question about that. Schools are strapped for cash. There is huge resource problems where music education is concerned. We continue to work with our partners and our schools, and they are just fantastic. Obviously, we are now face-to-face -face back in the majority of our schools from after the Easter break, which will be absolutely great. And we can continue that work within school um, after then. But funding for us is always something which we are continually looking at. Ashley, I'm interested in returning to the subject of your ambassadors, because it strikes me that personalities like Nicola Benedetti, Shaky Kenna Mason, they are almost, they are kind of Premier League footballers really, aren't they? they they're the ones who possibly have the most potential to influence uh, the people who would be able to make a real difference to uh, promoting music education, funding music education, and the support structures that are required in order to make it work. What messages do you think are going to cut through to the decision makers and the funders that will enable us to make a real step change in music education, not just tinker around at the edges? It's a very tough question. Very tough question. I think, first and foremost, I think when you're approaching a funder, they want to see that the work that you're doing is inspiring and is inspiring change and is helping people and providing opportunities to people that wouldn't necessarily get those opportunities. To inspire the bigger change that, that we're kind of talking about on here um, and kind of reform of like music education and how it's looked at and how it's seen is something that's a massive, massive job. Um, and I don't think we have all the answers yet. I feel like all the conversations that we're having now, you know, you know, if, if Wilfred Zaha hadn't come up and said, right, for, for whatever reason, I want all kids to play music instruments, like for whatever reason he did that, Anita wouldn't have, have done her thread of tweets, which the rest of the music education world, or a lot of the music education world, it showed up on my thread, um, on my timeline, you know, and I was like, Okay, I get this. I worked in Noom, but it wasn't just the Noom link because it made sense. It made a lot of sense what she was saying. Um, and 
all of these conversations that are happening now and all of the conversations around the decolonization of the curriculum and, and inclusivity, all of it adds together and all of it builds the picture of what an ideal music education would look like. But also coming back to what I was saying before about how music education doesn't just have to be about being an orchestra and how actually being a violinist can actually make you a better rapper if that's what you wanted to do you know, or ways that you can bring your culture and the music that you grew up with in your, in your household into your music classroom lesson and not feel like, oh, well, they don't like my music and they don't know and no one's asking me what we listen to and I can't really connect with it. That's where you're going to see the change. Um, so coming back to funders, like people like Benedetti and the Canon Mason family are invested in music masters because they see the work that we do and how we are trying to change the game. And that in turn inspires donors and wants them to, to give and to be involved and be inspired to, to be a part of what we do. And, you know, I'm very fortunate. We have an amazing development team who are not only working on finding donors and finding people that are interested in making a change in music, but they're also filling out the application forms and, you know, thinking about these concerts that can have someone, a grandma, give £10 and making sure that grandma gets a thank you for that £10 donation, you know, and covering all bases. Um, I've come from an organisation before that where it was just a group of trustees and you're lucky if you get three or four applications sent out and bring in five or ten thousand pounds if you're lucky to go towards it it needs that investment you need a fundraising team that are dedicated to do that whilst you have a music team who are dedicated on making sure that the music education side of it works you know when you've got those two things working together like music masters has i feel like we get results and and we are trying to push forward and drive change and like i said inspire people to to make that give and want to make that change and I think it's important for me to say that although I sort of preface the question by saying we talk about maestros and masters, yet we 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 perhaps struggle to get across some of the um, the less immediately tangible benefits of music and music education. There was no implied criticism there because you actually have to have a name that is inspiring, that implies that there is excellence, that there is something rewarding and and worthwhile to be had from this. Um, in terms of a, an organisation which has a completely amorphous name where nobody knows where we're from, uh, let's talk about APO for a minute. Um, everybody thinks we're from a sleepy West Berkshire village. We're actually named after, funnily enough, uh, a philanthropist, Richard Aldworth, who founded Reading Bluecoat School back in the 17th century. Um, Mel, you've been a member of APO for many years. Uh, you're now running Reading Youth Orchestra. How can APO tangibly help Reading Youth Orchestra to flourish and thrive? So the biggest driver I think for um, Reading Youth Orchestra getting out and about and being heard and seen in our local community is goodwill from people. We are incredibly lucky to have a huge amount of goodwill from local people whether that's parents getting their companies to sponsor us a little bit of money to help with venue fees or whether that's local musicians helping um, play either at rehearsals to give our students a boost or at concerts maybe it's hard to get particular instruments um, so they come and help us out with things like that so I think more 
adults and local musicians and local people who care about music talking to us and talking about us and spreading the word a bit more around other places would be so useful. Good. Okay. Well, I think we can we can definitely do some of that. Part of the reason why uh, Anissa's thread struck a chord with me is that over many years of APO's existence, I have struggled to think of a way or ways in which we can make a real tangible difference. And I think you know the the wider point about the societal factors and structures that exacerbate the basic problems around music education around for example supply of instruments it goes a bit more than that they kind of apply to to what i want to be able to do with a a good standard amateur orchestra of volunteers who already give up an awful lot of their time already um and there's a limitation to that and i i just find it massively frustrating <laughs> that i can't find a silver bullet to solve all these problems but to finish up with then if there's one thing that we could all do as individuals or as part of organizations to try and address some of the issues that Anita raised in her thread, some of which are patently beyond our individual control. So uh, we're not going to solve them here, um, but it's good to give them an airing, which I think is one of the more positive aspects of Twitter amongst some of the less favorable things about it. But if we were to try and do one thing each or to try and drive one change from somewhere else, what would that be? It's, I'm so glad you asked that because actually something that Ashley said really made me think about something that Reading Youth Orchestra could actually tangibly do. And that's bringing people's cultural music and their experiences of music into our orchestra. Um, this year, because we've been online, I mentioned we've been playing random pieces, you know, not just aspects of the classical repertoire, but things from films and compositions from students. Well, one thing we definitely have the flexibility and the ability to do is to reach out to some of our students with different cultural backgrounds and bring some of their music into what we play. I think that would be the, an amazing thing that we could do. So thank you for inspiring that idea. It's really helpful. I, I've said the word a lot, but I think inspire. Uh, you don't be afraid to have the conversation. Don't be afraid to to write that tweet and and start the conversation and get people talking. And um, you know, use the influence that that you have. Like looking at what the APO does with you know trying to provide free concerts or taking your orchestra into a train station. That's epic. Like that's that's the kind of stuff where someone who you know has got no idea about you guys or what you do but then they see that orchestra there and you can't ignore that you can't be inspired by that sound which is an experience that you know most people don't normally get to go to a, an auditorium and see that and experience that and and feel that so yeah if you've got an inspiring idea push it go for it make it happen because you never know what person's going to see it or what person's going to hear it who then take it on and really drive through. And that person might be the one who's got the silver bullet. For me, it's to support, big up and fund local music making. Again, this is me being what Philip Larkin described as the end of the line person from Hull. But <laughs> if children grow up with a local orchestra that does stuff that, you know, their neighbour maybe takes 
pass them along to be that neighbor take the next door's kids away from their parents for a night give them a night and take them to like listen to whatever the local orchestra is playing local choirs choral societies i think as musicians we get so worried about oh wouldn't it be great to do a tour to the us it's not the us be where you are and have a rich variety of music making for everyone of all ages and all backgrounds in your local area. I think we we need to continue as really creative people and, and there's so much creativity here today to be fearless, to get out there and shout about what we do from the rooftops. Yeah. If we do that, we stand much more of a chance to include many, many more people. We can be as diverse as we want. We take music from all over the world and we bring it in to, I agree, a local level. So people can hear round the corner, next door. It brings me back to, to people standing outside their doors clapping for the NHS. Let's continue that community spirit that we found and make our music education become the community. Fearless music making. I love it. And because of when, when you drive a bit of energy like that uh, on a local level, it's, it, it's, it, it has a big impact, but it is actually very doable. Uh, and that's, that's what I've, I almost wanted to get something out of this podcast, which is that we can do stuff as people who are passionate about music. And APO is full of people who aren't music teachers. There are a few music teachers as well, of course, but it's full of people who have a career not in music, not as a music teacher. But we have power, we have potential to inspire, as Ashley says, and have an impact at a local level, as Anissa says. And that is a bit of a clarion call, really, not just to APO, but to all local music makers to make that big difference. Uh, and on that note, I think it's a, a, gr a great way to finish. Uh, thank you all so much for taking part uh, and good luck in all your endeavours. Thank you so much. <laughs>